what's hard about discovery is you quickly get overwhelmed. Like if you interview a customer every week, you're taking in a lot of new information about your customer. So you have to be continuously synthesizing what you're learning. If you're running a series of assumption tests every week, you have to be synthesizing and evolving your solution ideas continuously every week. And so one of my goals with the book was to teach teams how to do this collaboratively in a way that makes their work visible as they're doing it. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And today we're thrilled to have on the Human Insight Podcast with us, Teresa Torres. She's a product discovery coach, speaker, and author of Continuous Discovery Habits. Thanks so much for joining us today, Teresa, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Janelle. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Teresa, your background, and what's keeping you busy these days? Yeah, so I work as a product discovery coach. Basically, what that means is I teach product teams how to make better decisions about what to build. Um, That usually involves including the customer in that sort of decision-making process. Um, And it's a little bit of a mix of just sort of human empathy skills with a little bit of um, kind of an experimental mindset combination, which is a lot of fun. And uh, a few months ago, I released my book, Continuous Discovery Habits. And so currently I've been doing a few things. I've been hitting the road virtually, doing a book, a virtual book tour. And um, over the past few years, we've um, launched a course business. So that's a little bit different side of our business where we offer online courses for individuals that want to develop their discovery skills. And this year in particular, I've kind of doubled down on that part of the business. So I do a lot of course design, a lot of teaching. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I'm i sure you've probably seen an uptick in uh, adoption of those courses with everybody remote and looking to learn and grow in their careers. Yeah, you know what I really like is that in the corporate training world, we got really stuck in a very specific model. Everybody wants a workshop. They want to come learn in person. I get it. It's fun to do things in person. I certainly miss it. Um, but I feel like workshops are not the best way to learn. It's a little bit of a fire hose. You're usually not learning in the context of your own work. You get back to work the next day and you're like, that was fun, but how do I apply it to what I'm doing? And I think um, online courses gives us a little bit more flexibility to play with format, um, to think about how do we create a safe place for people to learn and then support them as they translate it to their own work. We, in our courses, we have people from all over the world, which is really fun. It's been just really uh, a good creative outlet to play with how do we create really great learning experiences for people. Um, And I think it's one of the silver linings of everybody having to work from home is that we just are finding new ways to engage and stay in touch, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So thinking about the role of the product manager, you know, what do you see in terms of skill sets and experiences or backgrounds that are important uh, for product managers to be successful today? Yeah, this is an interesting question. So I tend to not think about discovery from a specific role because I teach a sort of cross-functional team approach to discovery. So usually it's a product manager, a designer, and an engineer working together to figure out what to build. And so I think all of those roles definitely can benefit from developing their skills in discovery and um, being more customer-centric. I think 
most of us in those roles like are inherently customer centric. Like we want to serve our customer. We're already motivated. But I think there's a gap between the daily activities we do and, and how customer centric those are. And it's simply because of business culture. We're kind of swimming upstream a little bit. I think over the last couple of decades, business culture overall has moved a little bit away from customer centricity, but sort of the shift to like shareholder centricity. But I would say for product managers specifically, I think what I see is that they get attacked from both sides. Like some organizations look at it as the product manager is the be all end all, and they're the ultimately responsible leader, and they're the mini CEO, and all of the responsibility is on them. And I don't really buy into that. I actually think we need to take a team approach because this stuff is really complex. Some people swing the pendulum the other direction and they say, well, if that's the case, we don't need product managers anymore. And I think the reality is, is that usually the product manager is bringing that business perspective. They should understand your business model inside and out. They should understand the competitive landscape. They should understand the underlying analytics and how your product is supporting that business. They should be internally managing the stakeholder landscape. That's a full-time job. Um, So I also don't buy into the, we don't need product managers anymore. I think as far as skills, I think it's a combination of really boosting your business mindset while also being a really effective cross-functional collaborative team member. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also love how you're sort of in in your book and, and even what you just mentioned about having sort of that team approach to building and creating and and being customer centric um, versus having one person own it, if you will. Yeah, we've sort of gone through cycles with this across the industry, right? I think maybe sometimes we say the product manager owns it. Sometimes we say the UXer owns it. Here's the challenge that I see. Like what we're learning is that these three perspectives are critical right? We need to build feasible products. We need to build usable products. We need to build viable products. I think the whole team is responsible for desirable and ethical products. And when we let one person be the voice of the customer, it's almost a trump card, right? Like if you and I are having a debate and, and you've the only, you're the only one who's talked to a customer and you say, well, this is what customers want. I don't really have a leg to stand on. And then the challenge with that is I'm bringing a perspective that is relevant and matters to the conversation. And we're not going to surface that perspective because I'm not on equal footing when it comes to the voice of the customer. So I really want to see the team engage with customers together. So they're all the voice of the customer. And then that really creates a more egalitarian mindset where we can actually leverage everybody's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the benefit of having everybody observing or talking to customers is that this stuff is not a science, right? And so the way that you see something versus the way that I see something versus the way maybe another person on a team on our team, if we were working together, it's all a little bit different. And so it's also worthy of discussion, right? Yeah. For you to come to the right perspective of what does the customer actually want? Because what I think might be different from what you think. Yeah. So I think definitely taking advantage of the different perspectives and the different roles are going to hear different things in an interview. Engineers in particular are going to hear things that a product manager or designer might dismiss as not as impossible or not even consider it because there's this really strong organizational truth that there's no way we could do that. And then the engineer might be hearing it for the first time and think about, actually, that's not that hard. We could tackle that. Or here's a new angle on that. Or there's this new API that unlocks that. 
Um, so we all hear things based on our previous knowledge and experience. And because those three roles tend to have pretty diverse backgrounds, we're going to get way more out of every customer conversation if we have a diverse group participating. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in your last response there, you mentioned um, this concept of continuous discovery. And I know that's uh, what your book is is titled as well. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what what is continuous discovery? Yeah, so I'll start with just discovery. Discovery really just represents the work we're doing to decide what to build, right? We often contrast this with delivery, which is the work we're doing to ship a production quality product. A lot of us, when we were introduced to discovery tactics, we were introduced to them from a project mindset. And that's because as an industry, we're really steeped in the project world still, even though we're trying to get more continuous. It's easy to see what continuous looks like on the delivery side, right? Like we can think back 20 years when we were putting software on CDs, shipping them in boxes, selling them on store shelves. And that was like, we would release every year or two. We've moved to a much more continuous delivery cycle. We see companies delivering every quarter, every month. The Amazons and Netflix of the world are delivering multiple times a day. Like that shift to continuous is really easy to see. On the discovery side, it's a little bit harder to see because decision-making, like aren't we always making decisions every day? That already is continuous. But what's not continuous is we forget to get customer feedback continuously through that process so that we're always um, informing those decisions and making sure that we're making good decisions. So continuous discovery is really, for me, it's looking at how do we take a structured approach to this really messy process of understanding our customers and making sure we're making decisions that are going to work for them. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense, um, especially to your point as we've moved to you know processes and this place where we're not releasing once a year. We are we do have you know these continuous releases. I'm curious with the this concept of continuous discovery. Are you seeing teams like it sounds like the right thing to do, right? And it sounds like it's you know the way that you build and and create and release great product. Is this actually happening today? Uh, and um, and but and also if so, like are you seeing it happening in certain types of organizations? Maybe it's startups versus more global enterprise customers. Would be just curious what what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So what's hard about this is that um, I always think of the William Gibson quote where he said, uh, "The future is already here; it's just unevenly distributed." And I think that's particularly appropriate when we're talking about continuous discovery. So I think the vast majority of product people have never seen what this looks like. Most of business is still grounded in this project-based, top-down, even if you're working in sprints or scrum or some flavor of agile, it's probably more from a waterfall mindset than it is from a truly agile mindset. Business culture changes really slowly. So most of us have not gotten to see what does this look like full tilt, right? But the good news is you don't have to be a full tilt continuous discovery team to get value from this. Um, so there are some teams, I've worked with a lot of teams that have, have adopted all of these habits and are full tilt and are doing a great job. And I will say they're from a wide variety of industries. We like to think that startups work this way and big companies don't. That actually hasn't been my experience. A lot of startup startups are really founder vision led and they're very solution first, stubborn about solution, which I think is why we see a lot of startups fail. 
Um, we don't see a lot of really early stage start startups obsessing about the customer. They're obsessed about their vision, right? So I don't, I don't think it's one type of company. Um, I'm not even sure it's whole companies. Like it's easy to think like, oh, this is how the best companies work. But I'm not sure that's true either. Like I don't think we're there yet. I think we're seeing pockets of it in lots of different places. And what I would look for is it's more about the leader that's driving the change and who's removing barriers and creating the right context for teams to work this way. I think once teams are equipped with the skills to work this way, they want to work this way. It's more fun. It's more customer centric. You have more success. It's faster. It's more collaborative. Like I think people genuinely want to work this way, but we have a lot of messy organizational change to get through to get there. So I do think it's happening. It's happening slowly. I, what I always tell people to help them not get discouraged is no matter where you work, you individually can get started. You can increase the frequency in which you engage with customers. You can start building those cross-functional collaborative um, sort of uh, relationships. You can test some of your internal assumptions. So you don't have to get all the way to perfect. But yeah, the reality is this change just happens slowly, right? And we're, we're at the very beginning of that change. Yeah, I uh, wholeheartedly agree with that one. I can relate to to um, you know certainly some of some of that perspective there that you just shared. I mean, we see similar trends within just the um, the world of gathering customer feedback, even beyond discovery, right? Um, so help me understand too. So you 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 the, this act of continuous discovery. So you're constantly and or continually uh, tapping the customer, getting customer feedback. Do you see best practices or ways that teams or people are actually communicating those learnings? Like, is there, like, I I see this broken down into kind of like two, and you feel free to disagree with me, but it's like, I see it broken down into the collecting of this information and then sort of like the dissemination of this information. Do you agree? And like, are there best practices for the, 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 the sharing? Yeah, I'm laughing because I have a blog post coming out on November 17th about this idea of we tend to separate the doing from the sharing. And what happens is we don't do the sharing as a result. So one of the things I encourage teams to do is to combine them into one activity. And this is one of my goals with the book. So throughout the book, as you're collecting, what's hard about discovery is you quickly get overwhelmed. Like if you interview a customer every week, you're taking in a lot of new information about your customer. So you have to be continuously synthesizing what you're learning. If you're running a series of assumption tests every week, you have to be synthesizing and evolving your solution ideas continuously every week. And so one of my goals with the book was to teach teams how to do this collaboratively in a way that makes their work visible as they're doing it. So some examples of this is I teach the use of an interview snapshot. Interview snapshot is just a one-page template that helps teams quickly synthesize what did they hear in an interview. And it's designed to be a synthesis exercise. Like you're not creating it to document the interview. You're creating it to have a collaborative conversation about what did we just hear from this customer? The side effect is it's also a really nice visual to communicate what you learned in the interview. And then the same is true with opportunity solution trees and story maps and assumption maps and experience maps. Like all of these things are team synthesis and alignment activities, but because they're visual, they're also really great ways to show your work and to keep the rest of the team 
um, following along and all your stakeholders following along. So I think one of the keys is to combine the showing, the doing and the sharing. Because when we separate them, when we say, let's do a dozen interviews and then when we're done, we'll put together a research deck. Well, we don't always get to the research deck. And even when we do, nobody reads it because it's too long, nobody has time. And the problem with research decks is we end up synthesizing down to these like overgeneralized research principles that essentially are platitudes. Like it's not real research. I'm not saying real research wasn't done, but the synthesis of it is not that actionable or timely anymore. Whereas if we're really synthesizing one interview at a time, you're starting to pull out. Like these are the specifics. These are the unique things we heard from this customer. And I actually think right now in the current world, after what we went through in 2020, especially with all the issues that were raised around social justice and inequity, I actually think it's really important that we treat each individual customer as the unique person that they are and that we not overgeneralize in our synthesis. And so I love this idea of like, let's just talk about what we learned from this person. That's our unit of analysis. And then later we can take those individual bits and think about what are the patterns. But let's just slow down and see like, oh, I'm talking to Janelle. Who's Janelle? What did I learn about Janelle? As opposed to when we talk to these 12 people, what did we learn? Right. I love that for so many reasons. You know, this this idea too of kind of thinking about how we consume information now. It is in these little sort of bites, right? So to your point, no one's going to sit down. Well, some people will, but uh, not, not everyone loves sitting down with a really long research report. So getting this information fed to you in nuggets makes a ton of sense. And you can imagine this sort of understanding building over time with each sort of nugget that you consume. I also love this idea of representing the, the person, right, that you're talking to versus making it a compilation of 12, 20, 50 people that we talk to. Yeah. Um, we see that as a really powerful part of user testing because usually you're when you're watching somebody use something or you're listening to somebody in an interview, it is a single person that you see and can yeah. relate to and, you know, kind of put yourself in their shoes. So help me understand when, when, when you're doing this sort of discovery or interviews or, or even in your interview snapshot, are there ways that you actually show the person? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, definitely. Just, yeah, definitely. Okay. So let's, let's get into this a little bit. So what did we used to do? We used to interview a dozen customers and then we would create personas. And what was the intent there? The intent was how do we build empathy internally, help people understand our different types of customers that was great when it used to be super expensive to recruit and find people to talk to. We used to have to hire outside research agencies to make sure that people were representative. It was hard to get time. We literally went to go see people in person around the country or we flew them in to talk to us. It was this big undertaking. Okay, we now live in a world where we literally can hop on a Zoom call with anybody around the world, right? Like it's easy to talk to customers. Um, and I would say user testing has made the testing side of this also really easy. Like we live in the heyday of discovery tools. I can run assumption tests. I can run interviews with people all over the world every day. And so I think this idea of continuous synthesis and interview snapshots is just the next evolution of this. So what does an individual interview snapshot look like? It's going to depend on your market and how much anonymity you need. So if you're interviewing somebody about health, you're probably not putting their name and photo on, on it. Um, if you work at a company where 
your all your interview data has to stay anonymous. You're not putting a name and photo on it. But if you can, I do like to see teams put names and photos on it. Let's help us remember that these are individual, unique, real people. You could always use pseudonyms and stock photos if you have to, but I really want them to be visual. I have teams pull out a really specific quote that represented the interview. I'll give some examples. I used to do product team assessments and I can remember some of the key quotes I pulled out. Um, I had a product manager say to me, I've worked here for three years, but they feel like dog ears. Definitely communicates the emotion of that interview, right? Um, I had another product manager say to me, I'm old, I'm old school, agile doesn't work for me, right? So it's this, um, obviously this was a company that was trying to go through a digital transformation and not succeeding at that. So I do like to see people identify a key quote that represents sort of the tenor of the interview. What those three things are doing, the name, the photo, the quote, they're like keys to our memory, right? So it's, they're helping us jog what do we hear in this interview. From there, I actually want people, so I teach a story-based format of interviewing. Um, I'm not going to pepper you with 100 questions. I'm going to ask you to tell me about a story. And then what I want to see people capture on the interview snapshot is I want them to draw an experience map of the story they heard. So we're visually capturing what was Janelle's experience. And then we're also doing things like capturing what are the opportunities, the needs, pain points, and desires that we heard from Janelle. And then what are the things that made her, um, that maybe were just insights that I want to make sure I don't lose. And then there's a section for, I call it the quick facts section, but it's sort of your um, segmenting data. It'll be different for every company. User testing, it might be they're a large enterprise customer, they're a small business, maybe they run Maybe you know they run uh, five user tests a week versus 150 user tests a week. It's just helping put that customer into the broader context. And then what that does is you end up with this one pager that helps you see somebody's unique story. You have some identifiers that help you remember that story. You've got a list of opportunities, needs, pain points, and desires for that customer that later when you're looking at how do I reach my outcome, you can pull opportunities from across your snapshots. I think it makes the research really actionable without generalizing and ignoring the uniqueness of each customer. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And thank you for sharing the examples and sort of best practice of, of what you see coming out of those interview snapshots. I now have to ask you sort of the opposite question because I'm curious. So, you know, we were it's important to bring these individual individuals and these individual experiences to life. But also, how do you feel or how do you approach um, this idea of compounding these learnings over time? Yeah, um, I have a couple of schools of thought on this. So there's, there's, I sort of think about it as a spectrum. There's like on one end of the spectrum, we want to capture everything we've ever learned and have a giant knowledge base and share it across all of our teams. And people on that end of the spectrum, they're using tools like Airtable or Notion and they're tagging everything. Here's what I see. Very few people go back to that resource. They're never, if you're always interviewing, when do you have time to go back and look at an old interview, right? The other end of the spectrum is, whatever, let's just fly by the seat of pants and talk to a customer every week. And we'll make decisions based on our most recent conversation. That's not really good either because now you're going to fall prey to recency bias, availability bias, um, all sorts of other biases based on what resonated most with you. One thing I like about interview snapshots is they're kind of a middle ground. You can archive your interview snapshots. It's easy, they're visual. 
it's easier to flip through a hundred of them than it is to go through notes from a hundred interviews. Um, I actually like to see teams keep them visible in their workspace. So back when we worked in offices, I actually had teams have binders of interview snapshots around their workspace. So whenever they were making a decision, they could flip through them. There's ways to do this digitally. I have a lot of teams keep them in like a Google Slides and they can flip through the slides or they do it in PowerPoint. Um, the key is that they just, or they do them in a Miro or mural board that they're actually working out of. So they're always right there. So there's lots of ways to do this, to keep them present and make it easy for you to rely on them. I don't think teams need to remember every single thing that they learned. I think one of the advantages with continuous discovery is you're getting answers to your right now questions right now. And so there is a little bit of this, we can just react and iterate week over week. And I think every interview you do, every assumption test you run, it's a little bit like putting money in the bank. It's compounding over time. And so if we can just do a little bit to capture those bits and every once in a while, remember to reflect back on the whole set of work, we're really um, able to take advantage of that compounding interest. Yeah, I think that that makes a ton of sense. And I can imagine with the interview guide, you're following some template with some common information across the interviews that, you know, even if you were to use a digital solution, perhaps those are sort of the nuggets that you tag, or maybe when you're flipping through the slides, you're looking at the same thing for each interview that, that you learned or something, you know, where people can recognize these patterns. And if they need to synthesize across many, they can, they can do that pretty easily. Yeah. The pattern I see with teams is maybe every three or four interviews, they're going through their snapshots and they're looking for what are the opportunities that we heard that are related to our current outcome? Those are going on their opportunity solution tree. And then um, beyond that, they tend to go back to their snapshots when they're assessing and prioritizing the opportunity space. Because one of the assessment criteria is how, how many customers are affected by this and how often. And so snapshots can, obviously our analytical data can help us with that. But sometimes we don't have analytical data for an opportunity. Um, it's not represented in our behavior, in our like quantitative data. And so a teams will go back to those snapshots and flip through them and say, how often are we actually hearing this opportunity? And I, it's amazing how often teams are surprised. They think something rarely comes up and they go back to their snapshots and they realize it's much more frequent than they thought. Or they think it's really frequent and they go back to their, their snapshots and they realize it was just one or two really noisy customers. At least with the work that we do with our that I when I talk with with our customers and and I you know recommend things like interviews, I think interviews can be somewhat scary to people because it is sort of it could be a very open ended. It's a blank canvas, right? Mm -hmm. Potentially. Mm -hmm. Do you have tips for teams? Like you talk about weekly interviews, but what are you interviewing them about? Like yeah. Interviewing is interesting because one, it really is just a normal conversation with a human. Like we all know how to have normal conversations. So that's on one side of the coin. And on the other side of the coin, what we ask does matter because it's going to change the reliability of what we hear. So the I in the book, I go in detail on how to run a good interview. So if you want help, definitely check that out. Um, but Janelle, let's run through an example. So I use streaming entertainment throughout the book as an example. So I'm going to use Netflix. If I was curious about interviewing you about your Netflix behavior, what a lot of teams do is they start with a whole bunch of who, what, why, how questions. So I would ask you things like, what do you like to watch? How do you decide what to watch? Where do you watch? Who do you watch with? What device do you watch on? The challenge with these questions 
is because of a wide variety of cognitive biases, humans are not good at answering direct questions out of context. So if I ask you what you like to watch, that's actually a speculative question. I'm inviting you to speculate about your behavior and your answer isn't necessarily gonna reflect your actual behavior. And we see this come up for a lot of reasons. Like maybe you really wish you watched more documentaries. So you're gonna tell me about that, but you're not gonna tell me about Trailer Park Boys, right? Cause you wish you watched less of that. So some of it is this like ideal self, actual self split. We all do this. Um, some of it is just like availability bias, like what happened most recently, but maybe that's not necessarily indicative overall behavior. Um, some of it is that we're people pleasers and we really want to tell the person what we think they want to hear. There's a lot of things that come up in interviewing. There's a ton of research on this because in the criminal justice system, we have done a ton of research on what leads to reliable witness interviews, right? So how do we get somebody to reliably answer about a scene they witnessed or um, their own personal experience, a story they're telling? And so we actually can borrow from that in our own interviews. So I don't want to ask these questions out of context. We actually see defense attorneys do this. They're going to pepper you with direct questions because they want unreliable answers because they're trying to get their person off, right? But the prosecuting attorney is going to walk you through a story because I know it's going to lead to more reliable answers and that's going to help their case. So what I want to ask you instead is, um, Janelle, tell me about the last time you watched Netflix. And then I want to help you tell that story. So I want to start with where were you? What were you doing? How did you decide to watch Netflix? What did you end up watching? How did you come to that decision? So I can get answers to all those direct questions, but because they're grounded in a specific instance, they're going to be more reliable. You're not going to tell me you watched a documentary when you actually watched Trailer Park Boys. You're actually going to probably laugh at yourself a little bit and tell me you watched Trailer Park Boys and get into why that's meaningful to you, right? And so the first thing is, I do think interviewing well is a skill that takes practice. And but it's not, it's not rocket science. Anybody can learn the skill. Um, it does just take a little bit of practice and a little bit of know-how about what leads to more reliable information. I love that uh, you're, you ask people to sort of recall it and tell you a story versus, you know, um, you asking them direct questions. It, it makes a ton of sense when you, when you really sit down and think about it. And also much easier for teams to relate to stories, right? We know the brain. <laughs> I think they're like different parts of the brain that light up when, when you, when you're consuming a story. And so, and they are easier to remember than, yeah. than other facts and details. Exactly. Much easier to remember. So you, that, this is also going to help with that synthesis and storage that we talked about. You're actually going to be carrying around an arsenal of customer stories that you can fall back on. Um, the other thing that happens from stories. So not only do we get more reliable answers, we also get context. So if I just ask you a bunch of who, what, why, how questions, I might learn. Okay, so Janelle watches Netflix after dinner most nights. She likes to watch documentaries and reality TV show. Okay, great. What am I going to, how's that actionable, right? If I collect stories, I'm going to hear things like your internet connection and how it affects your viewing experience. I'm going to hear things like who you watch with and how much of a negotiation it is when picking something to watch. I'm going to hear things like why it's hard for you to turn off the TV and go to bed on time because we've designed these really addictive hooks to keep you watching one more episode, right? These are where we're, needs, pain points, and desires are going to emerge, and we're going to learn about how can we positively um, impact our customers' lives. 
Yeah. So um, I want to switch gears a little bit here. So, you know, we've talked about this idea of collecting and, and, you know, doing this continuous discovery. We talked about this idea of sharing and building that sort of institutional knowledge or shared knowledge about the customer and also, you know, what their needs are. I'd love to talk now about like what this all means and what you end up doing with it. And, and, and most importantly, how do you map these learnings to these opportunities that you've mentioned? How, how do you tie this back to business goals? Yeah. So I look at discovery as having two key activities. We've talked about the first one, which is interviewing. The second one is assumption testing. And that's the reason why I think these are the two critical activities is because um, we're moving to a world where product teams are tasked with outcomes. Drive this metric, have impact the business in this way. Usually that outcome represents business value. This is how your team can create value for the business. Um, from there, we want to discover the opportunities, which is customer value. So customer needs, pain points, and desires that if we addressed them, have the potential to drive the outcome. And then we do need to discover solutions that can address those opportunities. So um, an outcome, if we stick with the Netflix example, it might be increased subscriber retention. As we interview, we're going to discover opportunities. That's going to help us understand um, why are people churning today? What? Why aren't they engaged? Why don't they watch more? What's preventing them? What are those pain points? What are those needs? That if we addressed them, they would stick around, they would engage more. And then we want to discover solutions that have the potential to address those opportunities. So what I basically verbally described is my opportunity solution tree, which is a visual that helps teams map all of that out so that they so that they don't get distracted by opportunities that don't have um, the ability to drive the outcome and they don't get distracted by solutions that are solving the wrong problems. What we see in a lot of businesses is that customer value and business value are at odds. We're trading off between the two. And that's really unfortunate because I think we don't have to do that. We can find ways to create customer value that will in turn create business value. And that dramatically simplifies our lives. It helps us feel good because we're serving a customer. And more importantly, it's creating value for the business. So we're going to earn our paycheck over the, over time and actually get to keep serving the customer, right? If we don't create business value, we're not going to get to keep serving the customer. Yeah, great points. Thinking about the last, uh, so switching gears a little bit again. So over the last five or 10 years, uh, in your opinion, is there like a product or a technology um, that's had a big impact on the world of product management? I think there's several. So if I think back to when I started my product career in the late 90s, it was really hard to find customers to talk to when we were doing what I would say today are the equivalent of assumption tests. Everything had to be done in code, right? We didn't have split testing tools. We didn't have these like tools that allow you to pop up interstitials and do one question surveys. So like, what do we have today? One, we can interview a customer regardless of where they are in the world. We can do it over reliable, keyword being reliable, video conversations where we can see their face and see their body language. So now we can interview a much wider diversity of customers. We have amazing assumption testing tools with um, unmoderated testing platforms like user testing, one question surveys, tools like Ethneo and Qualaroo and even Intercom and Usabilla and UserZoom, all these tools that do this now. We have amazing prototyping tools. We can create prototypes a lot quicker, a lot faster now. 
Um, we have amazing collaboration tools and these digital whiteboard tools like Miro and Mural and Jamboard. I think part of the reason why we're seeing teams adopt discovery more today is because we finally have tools that make it easy for us to work this way. I'm blown away. Like I really wish I could go back and be a 22 year old and start my career again because the product world looks radically different. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Just, you know, <clears throat> growing up as a, as a researcher, you know, things like renting a lab for two days and yeah. actually having physical like paper prototypes that you're yeah. testing. Right. And then doing, you know, the affinity mapping diagram afterwards to, you know, make sense of all the things that you learned uh, and saw in the session. Like everything was so, Since well, I mean, it was what it was, but it's just so much more efficient now. Yeah. It used to take a month to recruit, um, design the prototype, rapidly test the prototype. I mean, process all the results. Like it was so slow and expensive. Whereas now I remember a few years ago, I think it was shortly after I learned about user testing. Um, so probably several years ago, usertesting.com. So several years ago, I had this vision of like, I remember what it was like when engineers went through the shift to nightly builds and like reconciling code bases on a daily basis and how magical that was, like how it removed all of the pain of like release conflicts. And, but like, there was a little bit of this like adjustment of like, oh, I commit code continuously. I'm integrating code continuously. When I learned about usertesting.com, and I swear to God, user testing is not paying me to say this. It was a magical moment for me because I realized we are going to get to a point where a designer can mock something up in the morning and by the end of the day have feedback from customers on it. And that to me is the equivalent of continuously integrating code. We can continuously get feedback on our designs, on our ideas, on what problems we're solving. That's magical. We And people that are growing up in this day of tools have no idea what it was like. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like dial-up versus uh, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> what we have today, for sure. Um, all right, I'm going to move over to um, the lightning, the lightning question round. So this is really designed to be kind of whatever comes to mind, and we'll move through them in pretty rapid fire. Yeah. So uh, tell us about a book you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners. I just read Think, Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, he's an amazing author, super engaging. He's a good researcher, so it's, it's pretty grounded in evidence. And it's all about how to help people question their position. So rather than me, let's say one of us is an anti-vaxxer and one of us is not, and we're trying to have a conversation around it. Usually we attack each other, right? Um, the book is really all about how do you ask questions with from a curiosity mindset to help someone uh, reconsider their own perspective. Really powerful. Love that. Yeah. It sounds like a much more optimal way to perhaps get someone to change their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. A piece of advice that you might give to somebody that's trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback, you know, and for context on this, we have a, we work with different companies and teams that are, are really still trying to get people to buy into this concept of customer feedback. I'm not a big fan of trying to convince other people of things. Um, so I get this a lot. Like, how do I convince my boss to let me work this way? Any, any question I get that includes the word convince, my answer is usually don't. And to look at what's within your span of control that you can do right now. So an example of this, like, how do I allow, how do I get permission to talk to a customer? 
Okay, well, you could take the organizational change approach, turn it into a big project and say, all of our product teams need to talk to customers. That's going to be a slow uphill battle. It's going to take a long time. You're going to get a lot of resistance. Or you could just go make friends with a sales rep or an account manager and ask to sit in on one of the calls. That's a lot faster path. Um, and the advantage of that second path, starting with what's in your control, is now as you start to get value from those activities, you can show the value. And that's a much more effective um, route to the organizational change you wanted in the first place. What's a recent great experience that you've had lately and uh, what made it so great? Oh, this is a good question. I was thinking about it when I saw it on your list. I like... Because of the last two years of like just the whole world changing, the thing that I'm really enjoying right now is just the everyday interactions with people that are not, wouldn't be in your friend's circle, but they're familiar, they're in your community. So like, I'm going to, this is going to be a really silly example, but like I went out um, to dinner two nights ago. I was at Deschutes Brewery in Bend, Oregon. It's somewhere we go all the time. There's a server, Chris, who is super friendly. He's a great server. We used to, he used to be our server all the time before COVID and all through COVID, we wondered, how's he doing? Does he still work there? We walked in last night. He was our server. We caught up. It was amazing. Is Chris my friend? I have literally never seen him outside of Deschutes. I think humans need that kind of interaction. And I'm really grateful it's returning. And I know that's not related to product, uh, but I feel like it's just been such a missing part of the world. Um, and I'm just delighting and the, the normal everyday things that we didn't get to do for so long. Yeah, I I can totally relate to that. It's almost like you you didn't even know how much you missed it until it yeah. happens, again, happens again, right? Yeah. I think it's things that help us feel grounded in our communities. Like, oh, I belong here. Like I, I recognize you. We're, um, we're part of the same world. We inhabit the same space. We're friendly with each other. Um, I think it really helps us feel grounded in space. And I think we've been missing a lot of that. All right. So last question. Uh, when you think about the future of product, what are you most excited about? Probably related to what we were talking about with tools. Like I'm not, people ask me all the time, like, what are the best tools? And I'm not a big tools person in the sense that like, you should pick the tools that work for you. Like I'm not very dogmatic about specific tools, but I do think we are living in a time where tools are enabling a much better way of working. And I think we're just at the beginning of how tools can augment like human intelligence and human collaboration and just business culture. And I'm really excited to see that continue to grow. I think we scratched the surface with everybody suddenly having to work from home. Um, we're still using the tools that existed before we had to work from home. But I think in the next year or two, we're going to see a whole new generation of tools that were designed from the ground up with this idea of a remote collaboration. And I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I totally agree. I'm starting to see some interesting things pop up now, but I'm sure it's only going to accelerate. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Teresa. This was amazing. I had such a blast chatting with you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend 
or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 